0: Welcome to Old Stories of New Suns, a classic sci-fi travelogue. I'm Chris. On this show, we visit real stars in order of increasing distance from Earth, focusing on the way those stars were described in classic science fiction stories. Join me on a journey through old stories about imaginary trips to real places. This time on Old Stories of New Suns, we'll be traveling to Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to the sun, as it was imagined by Murray Leinster in his 1935 story, also called Proxima Centauri. Other than the sun, Proxima Centauri is the nearest star to Earth. It's four and a quarter light years away. In our 1G ship, the trip will take us a little over three and a half years, thanks to time dilation, but almost six years will pass for the folks we leave behind. Proxima is technically part of the Alpha Centauri system but it orbits the other two stars in the system once every 550,000 years, almost a quarter of a light year from them. Even from Earth, Proxima is separated from Alpha Centauri by over two degrees. That's more than four times the diameter of the Moon. So we'll consider it a separate entity. The star is a red dwarf that would need to be around 70 times brighter than it actually is if you wanted to see it from Earth without a telescope. Only in the last few months of our journey can we see Proxima Centauri without help. In his 1935 story, Proxima Centauri, Marie Leinster sets the scene for us. As our 1G ship approaches the system, we encounter some frozen planets far from the dim star. After 42 months on board, we crowd around the viewports, anxious to see something natural beyond our synthetic cocoon. These first planets are disappointing frozen and dead, barren of any life. We continue our journey, hoping for more interesting sights. A bit closer to the star floats another frozen world. From our perch high above the surface, it appears as lifeless and uninteresting as the first planets we encountered. But Leinster tells us this planet is different. Here there are tiny quadrupeds who live their lives beneath the ice. We don't stop to see them. As adorable as they surely are, we need to be careful. The inhabitants of the inner planets are hunters, who pursue the creatures that burrow beneath the surface of this frozen world, and they consider us just as tasty. Next, we encounter two garden planets. The first, further from the star, is perhaps a bit too cold for a new Eden, and the second might be a bit too warm, but take your pick. They're both safe for the moment. The hunters who stalk the fourth planet have no interest in these places, where no animals live, only plants. If the temperature is a little less than completely comfortable, the environment otherwise is idyllic, offering vegetation to serve every conceivable human need. As inviting as the second and third planets are, we can't linger. Although the beings who live in the Proxima system don't frequent these places, it won't be long before they notice us and decide we might make a tasty snack. Departing the fragrant gardens of the second and third planets, we take pains to cloak ourselves from the inhabitants of the first planet. As we've noted, they find humans delicious, and they're intelligent enough to be dangerous. They have hunted all animals to extinction on their steamy homeworld, as well as on the second and third planets in the system, which is why they travel all the way to the frozen fourth world to hunt the native animals. They have weapons that can bore a hole through our hull, disabling the ship and killing the passengers, so we need to keep our distance. From orbit, we observe the surface with our telescopes. The surface is covered in structures, houses, offices, schools, the whole panoply of buildings we have on Earth. But these buildings are undeniably strange. All of them are grown rather than built made by causing plants to grow into useful shapes before being placed into a sort of suspended animation, so they look far more organic than any similar structures back home. And not just the buildings. Vehicles, too, are made of the same stuff, which can be made to begin growing again, repairing or even reshaping itself to suit the occupants' needs. What about those occupants? What are the aliens like who built this world? In some ways, they're a lot like us. They have a government and a legal system, they study arts and sciences. They're especially adept at biology, the science that allowed them to control the living materials from which they built their cities. In other ways, though, the Proximans aren't like anything on Earth. They're bipedal, just like us, but the physical similarities end there. Instead of arms and hands, they have tentacles that split into filaments. Their limbs, both arm tentacles and legs, are completely flexible, with no identifiable joints. They have no heads, but slits in their bark-like covering serve as eyes. Essentially, they're plant people, vegetable matter that has gained intelligence. The Proximans evolved from carnivorous plants, sort of like the Venus flytraps that we have on Earth, and they never lost their taste for animal matter. They'll consume not just meat, but also hair and products like wool and leather. And consume really is closer to the truth than eat. They take in their food by exuding a corrosive liquid from their tentacles that dissolves the flesh, then reabsorbing the fluid. As we observe the Proximans, one of their astronomers notices us. Alerted to our presence, the aliens launch ships to intercept us, ray guns at the ready. We can't outrun them, but our ship is designed to accelerate for years at a time, and theirs are designed to travel only within their own solar system, so we can outlast them. We make our escape and head for home, no worse for wear. Marie Leinster's Proxima Centauri is a fantasy, a setting for a fun Golden Age story. What's the real Proxima Centauri like? Let's start with the star itself. Leinster doesn't talk about the color of Proxima, but it would probably be the most striking thing were we to visit the system. The star is only about half as hot as the sun, so it's noticeably redder, somewhere between the color of an old-fashioned incandescent light bulb and the color of a candle flame. Leinster describes Proxima Centauri as a ringed sun. We usually think of planets, not stars, as having rings, but stars can have them under some circumstances. Proxima actually may have a ring of fairly warm dust at around the same distance as Mercury orbits our sun. So Leinster may have gotten that part more or less right. He didn't do such a good job predicting the number of planets around Proxima Centauri. We know of two rather than the six he wrote about. The first, Proxima b, orbits about every 11 days, about 20 times closer to the star than Earth is to the sun. Even that close to the star, Proxima b is a bit colder than Earth, because the star gives off so little light. Liquid water could exist here, assuming an atmosphere with a greenhouse effect not too much greater than that on Earth. And there's some hope for such an atmosphere. Proxima b is somewhere between 20% heavier than Earth and 3 times the mass of the Earth. At the higher end of that range, it might have an atmosphere similar to that of Neptune, but the lower-end mass estimates could make it quite similar to Earth. If there's liquid water and an Earth-like atmosphere, is there life? Could Leinster's plant people actually live on Proxima b? In reality, no. Proxima Centauri is a flare star, sometimes undergoing solar storms that cause it to brighten dramatically, giving off huge amounts of radiation. The radiation reaching the surface of Proxima b is two orders of magnitude greater than that survivable by any known organism. Even if the temperature and other conditions are suitable, the radiation would kill any life that somehow managed to evolve. The other planet, Proxima C, orbits Proxima Centauri once every five years or so at about the same distance that Mars is from the Sun. The surface temperature is ridiculously cold. At 39 Kelvin, it's almost cold enough to liquefied neon. Sadly, the real-life Proxima system is much less interesting than Leinster's version of it. Although, given the way his plant people would view us, maybe that's for the best. That's all for this episode of Old Stories of New Suns. You can reach me at oldstoriesofnewsuns at gmail.com, or on Twitter at sci-fi travelogue. and I'd love to hear your thoughts about the stars we're visiting. I hope you'll join me next time for another old story about another new sun.